This, uh, this sermon tonight, Hard Sayings of Jesus, is uh, from really a two-lesson series I, I've done before. The first lesson I usually would do on a Sunday morning, it's called Great Sayings of Jesus. And uh, then this one's called Hard Sayings of Jesus. And it, I, I subtitled it The Real Jesus because the, uh, the uh, social media Jesus is someone that... Uh, not only loves everyone, but he's totally inclusive and he never says anything to hurt anybody. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus, especially as he got toward the end of his ministry, uh, he was offending just about everyone. And there was a purpose in it. You know, it's interesting, the Chosen series that's on uh, uh, Netflix and television and uh, has been in major movies, from the Angel Studios, he's kind of bearing that out because in the early part of Jesus's ministry, when he would do a miracle or preach something particularly uh, controversial, he would let everybody know, just, just keep this between us. You know, just... In fact, he would solemnly charge when he raised the, raised the synagogue official's daughter uh, in the series, just like in the Bible message, he said, I solemnly charge you not to tell anybody about this. And he only had Peter, James, and John in the room with him, along with the parents of the child. Don't tell a soul about this. Why? Why? Because he said, you don't need the controversy right now. And I think that's, that part of the series is very much accurate about what Jesus' aims were. Because, because at the beginning of his ministry, he wanted, to establish his, he wanted to establish his credentials with his, primarily with his apostles. And then as time went on, he had to appeal to the masses in greater and greater and greater and harder and harder realities to the extent that while they could not deny who he was, they uh, did not like what he said and would not accept what he said. The hard saying of Jesus, I had five, I'm going to do four tonight, and the hard sayings of Jesus are these. And to us today, some of these don't seem like they're all that hard. What's so hard about these? I am the bread of life. Well, we know he's the bread of life. But that was a hard saying of Jesus when he uttered it. And uh, tradition-based worship is in vain. He said to the Pharisees, your traditions are not scripture. And when you use them... Uh, you're worshiping God in vain. He said to the uh, Pharisees also, he said, marriage is for life. And of course, the apostles and disciples were there and uh, they didn't like that very well either. And then he said also at the very end of his ministry, during the last week, actually, he said, judgment day is coming. And boy, oh boy, they didn't like that because they killed him uh, the next day actually. And so they didn't like any of the things that Jesus said in this series of points, hard sayings from Jesus. And so first of all, he said, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 6 and in verse 53, we see these words. Jesus began to argue with them and said, Verily I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, 
and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever and forever. And so as a result of Jesus' statement, that paragraph, which is near the end of the chapter, near the end of that sermon to them, his disciples come to him and they hear this and they said, this is a hard saying. More modern, the modern versions say, it's difficult. This is difficult. And the word difficult there just means rough and tough and kind of like uh, just, uh, just really hard. Uh, the same word is used in other places in the New Testament about a, just a strong storm and wind. This is really hard to get over. So when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at this, he said, does this offend you? <laughs> does this offend you? And uh, so it did. It did offend them. Now what's interesting about this situation here is this, is this comes at the end of, uh, first of all, it comes, at the, it comes at the end of the third series of the Chosen series, by the way, the third season. And it's the last episode of the third season. And what happens in that last episode is what happens in John 6. Uh, and John 5 and, and John, well, John 6. Most of it's all is in John 6. 5,000 people are fed. Jesus meets out on the plains up in the northern part of Israel, the, near the Sea of Galilee, and they all come up there. And there are some backstories and sub-channel stories in that, in that, in that episode. But, but mostly it, it, it crystallizes in this great feeding of the 5,000. And of course, they start with two loaves and a few fishes, right? And they wind up with basketfuls. And uh, then to top it off, Jesus says, get in the boat, disciples. And you row across the water. I'm going to go up into the hills to pray. And they struggle mightily because a storm comes up and he walks to them on the water. And we know that Peter, uh, from other versions, Peter comes walking on the water with him and that, and that whole story. But the series doesn't go tell the rest of the story. And, and we're going to tell the rest of the story tonight from this uh, episode. And that is that the people who are fed, they see that the disciples are headed across the lake. And they traverse around the lake. And then when Jesus gets there and the disciples are there, they, they, they meet up with Jesus. And they say, uh, how'd you get here? <laughs> Well, I mean, we walked around and we didn't see you. How'd you get? Well, we, from other versions of this in the synoptic gospels, we know what happened is that when Jesus got in the boat with them, the boat immediately got to dry land. It was a miracle on all sides. But the people come around to the other side. And they say, Rabbi, how did you get here? Uh, by the way, uh, where's breakfast? <laughs> and Jesus said, you know, you people are seeking me. Uh, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so he's, he actually chastises them. They've walked all the way across the lake 
around the lake to find him, and he chastises them because he says, you know, all you care about is filling your bellies. Work for the food which does not perish. Do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life. So what's, what is that? What is that? And Jesus basically said, me, I, I am that food. I am that bread. And then they bring up the whole manna from heaven thing. Wait a minute. God fed the, our fathers with manna in the wilderness. And Jesus said, yeah, and they died. <laughs> not, not a one of them, save Caleb and Joshua, made it to the promised land. Jesus said, they ate and were filled and died. And if you eat of my bread, you will live. You'll have eternal life. And they don't like that very much. They start grumbling about that. He says, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. I am the one that gave that bread to your fathers. And I am the living bread that is here now sent from the father. Whoa, whoa. How do we, how do we eat you? How do we eat your bread? How do we drink your cup? How do we eat your flesh? How do we drink your blood? This is crazy. What's going on here? Why were they offended by what they saw? Well, first, as we've just described, it's set in contrast to the feeding of the 5,000. And he basically says, I'm not going to feed you anymore. Okay? Not, at least not physical bread. I'm here to feed you spiritual bread. I'm here to give you the bread which endures to eternal life. Your fathers ate manna and they died. Eat from me and you will live. Then next he's saying this. Because, you know, he says, our fathers ate the manna from heaven. And what he's telling these Jews is, is that, look, lose the entitlement mentality. On many occasions, the Pharisees and others would come to Jesus and say, you know, we're Abraham's seed. We're, we're Abraham's children. Like, so what? Jesus said, God can raise up from these stones Abraham's seed. What Jesus tells them in this chapter is that simply because you are physical Jews, you're not owed anything. You are going to have to come to me. You're going to have to believe in me. The Father is going to have to draw you and teach you. And you're going to have to learn of me and believe in me and partake of me to have eternal life. Well, that concept of the Messiah for them is just all out of whack. Because you see, the Messiah is someone who's going to ride in on a white horse and he's going to conquer the invading Romans and he's going to give them manna from heaven. And hey, it's going to be good times are here again. Let's all have a great time. Happy days are here again, right? The stones on the ground are like silver and gold, like in Solomon's day. That's what they expected. And Jesus said, no, it ain't that way. You know, the premillennialists accuse us, they accuse us of spiritualizing the kingdom. Guess what? They're right. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus and the Messiah is a spiritual Messiah. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's of another world. 
And, you know, the fact that you guys are physical Jews doesn't mean anything. You're going to have to be born again. He said that to Nicodemus in the early part of his ministry, didn't he? You're going to have to be born again to get into the kingdom. I mean, born again, but what, what is this? What, what language is this? How do you be born again? And Jesus said, well, you have to be born again to the water and of the spirit, right? And so they didn't like that. They didn't like that attitude, okay? They said, this Jesus, well, he's just the carpenter's son. Who is this guy? We've seen him. I mean, he was, this was in the northern part of Palestine. These were people, many of them, that had seen him grow up. Is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son? No, he's not. He's God in the flesh. And when he confronts the apostles after this episode, because many of the disciples leave, Okay, many, many, uh, many wander away from him. Many can't handle this. Uh, they withdraw from his uh, ministry. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? It's the words. What is this eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood? It's the words of eternal life. Now, I realize we read this passage sometimes in taking the Lord's Supper. And it's specifically, it's not about the Lord's Supper specifically. I don't mind people reading the, this about the Lord's Supper because metaphorically, I understand it is. Because when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of all of Jesus in the way that he gave us to symbolize his death and resurrection. But really, it's not about that. Really, this chapter is about partaking of the words of life that Jesus has given. You know, this is why I kind of take issue with people. And when I say kind of, I mean, look, it's not that big of a deal with me. But people who say, you know, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. Well, okay, that's fine. You know, but what does that mean? I mean, what Jesus have you accepted? Have you accepted his words of life? Because that's what he's talking about here. He's not, he's not just talking about believing in him, even as the son of God. He's talking about believing in him and following his teachings, following his words, becoming a disciple of his. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know. This is Peter just walked on the water. Now he says this. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And later, Peter, of course, says, we know that you are the Son of God in uh, 16th chapter of Matthew after the transfiguration. All right, so, so this was an offensive, offensive statement because it changed the nature of who they thought the Messiah ought to be from what Jesus said the Messiah actually was. What he actually was. And so it's not just Jesus as the Lord and Savior. It's Jesus as the King. And one who has to be listened to and obeyed. And so the second offensive statement that Jesus uttered. And of course there are more of them. But the second one for tonight is in Matthew chapter 15. And in this chapter, in 
verses 7 through 9, Jesus says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Then the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? What is the statement that Jesus, that they were so offended by? Well, the Pharisees had seen earlier in the chapter, they had seen Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. Well, now, if, if my mother and your mother saw you eating with unwashed hands, she'd probably tell you to go back to the bathroom and wash your hands. But that's not the kind of hand washing we're talking about here. The kind of hand washing that the Pharisees are talking about is a very, very ceremonial action. It doesn't really do much cleaning at all. It just involved, and I read about the ritual at one point, it just I let the water drip down to here to a certain point, and then you turn it around and let it drip. Just a bunch of nonsense, really. Just crazy idiocy, you know. Just nonsense, really. Just not, it does nothing. I mean, nothing like that was ever commanded in the Old Testament. But it was one of these oral traditions that had been handed down, and all of a sudden, just like a lot of things that the Pharisees and Sadducees did, it became... Uh, it became very important to them. It was symbolic. Somehow it was symbolic of something for them. And, and so it became important. So Jesus confronted them and said, well, why do you transgress the law of God for the sake of your tradition? Because you don't honor your father and mother. You say, if money that was dedicated to them is given to the temple, then I don't have to honor them. And he says, when you do that, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And so he says, you are hypocrites because you care more about your traditions than you care about the word of God. Now this is on into Jesus's ministry, probably his second year, end of his second year. And so he's starting to be a lot more confrontational to these people. And he's saying, look, your traditions are not law. Your words, your interpretations are not law. And in fact, what you are doing is violating the law by elevating your traditions above the law. Now, anytime, anytime we elevate traditions above the law, we're going too far. Now, sometimes we talk about something called expedience. And expedience simply means a means to an end. Okay, and a lot of people ask us about things. When, when they are trying to, um, well, how do I describe it? When people are trying to denigrate any kind of authority, the need for authority, they'll say stuff like, well, where's your authority of having a church building? Uh, well, well, where's your authority of having a water fountain or a bathroom, right? Well, let me tell you something. I appreciate having a bathroom in the building. Because I used to preach at a church in Tennessee that didn't have a bathroom in the building. They had an outhouse in the back. Yeah, that's right. Outhouse in the back. That's where everybody went. Uh, a place called Gloriana out in the country north of Murfreesboro. <laughs> had some good people there. But 
These are expedients. They're means to an end. When that means, when that means to an end helps us to expedite the command of the Lord, then it's a lawful expedient. It's simply a way that we obey the law of God. Okay, God wants us to come together. He wants us to assemble. The New Testament Christians assembled. They assembled in a variety of different places. You know, just as an aside, I just, I just find it hilarious that people, more and more people are starting to argue that, you know, the pattern of the early church was a house church. You know, it's, I mean, it's mentioned like two times in all the scriptures. Priscilla and Aquila had a house church in Corinth. Okay, great. They had a house. Well, where else did they meet? Well, they met in the synagogues. That's where they met. The reason you don't hear of church buildings in the first century is because Christians were taking over the synagogues. And the church building became, the synagogue became the church building. That's where they started meeting. You don't believe that? Read chapter, uh, first Corinthians, uh, read Acts chapter 18 about what happened in Corinth to Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue who had converted to Christianity. The Jews coming from the various places starting in Jerusalem uh, who were following Paul and harassing and persecuting him and other Christi early Christians, they dragged him out of the synagogue and beat him to death. And they nearly beat him to death. Uh, I mean, that's, that was what the early church buildings were, were the synagogues. I used to have a, um, I used to have a book in my library called uh, Early Churches, Old Churches. And they had, they had pictures of churches or foundations of churches dated all the way back to the early second century. Yes, Christians built church buildings. <laughs> even in the second century, even in the first century, they built for church buildings when they didn't have uh, enough space to meet. They met, in, they met by the riverside. They met in homes. They met in the synagogues. They met in amphitheaters. They met in the temple courtyard. They met wherever they could meet. And so expedients become those means to an end that are lawful when they help us obey the command. When those means become law, well, then they become hurtful and wrong, right? So uh, when styles, when um, the fashions change, I mean, I'm wearing a tie right now. Right? I mean, it used to be that nobody would ever get up at the pulpit and not wear a tie, but I don't have a jacket. So some people would not like it. Now, this is 30 years ago. Some people would not like it that I don't have a jacket on. Now, you not only don't have to have a jacket, but you don't even have to have a tie to, to come up here. And so, I mean, styles have changed, but that doesn't matter. None of that, none of that is essential to our worship, isn't it? That none of that is essential to expediting the command of God. And you can give example after example after example of these kinds of things. But when expediencies kind of start developing some kind of symbolism of their own, like washing of the hands, and then they, they become some kind of, some, somehow holy in the eyes of those who are doing these things, well, then they're no longer, they're no longer uh, lawful, they've become unlawful and wrong and hurtful. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has another hard saying. In verses 10 through 12, 
The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. He said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So the disciples basically say, let me understand this here. What, this is what you're saying? Let me, let me read it again. You see, I've, I've, I've been, as an elder in Connersville, I've actually been in more than one situation where in marital counseling or whatever, I would take the Bible and I would just turn it to Matthew 19 or Matthew 5 and I would say, here, you, you read it. They're in red, the letters in red, right? And so they would read it. No commentary, right? No commentary. And their eyes would get like this big, right? And they would lift up and they would say, this, I'm telling you the truth, Charles. That's what they would say. <laughs> it, can't be, it can't be like that. Their, I mean, their actions, their attitude, their reaction to reading it, oftentimes for the very first time, were just like the disciples. It can't mean that. What do you mean? Life? Marriage for life? And Jesus said, yeah. I mean, basically, here who here, he who has ears to hear, he who able to accept it, let him accept it. I mean, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, basically, he said, yeah. <clears throat> that's the law. That is, that's the way it is in the kingdom of heaven. And if you can't accept that, well, then you can't accept it. And you'll either not be in the kingdom of heaven or you'll become a eunuch, okay? Because there are eunuchs that are born that way, some are made that way, and some are that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, because they have no right to remarry, right? They have no right to remarry. Look, this, is, this isn't about, and I'm not gonna, this is not gonna be a lesson on marriage, but this really isn't about divorce. It's not about separation. There are, there are reasons that people separate. And 1 Corinthians 7 talks about some of those reasons, and I'm not gonna dive into that. But there are reasons. The key to Matthew 19 is marrying again. Yeah, because there's, there's only one exception that is given in Matthew 19 for marrying again. Uh, absent, you know, absent your spouse dying. I mean, and Jesus doesn't even bring that up. That's brought up in other passages. Uh, there's only one exception, and that is sexual immorality. And we know what sexual immorality means because Jesus is using the, using the same definition as is used in the Old Covenant. So you can go to Leviticus, I think places like Leviticus 16. I may be wrong about that reference, but there are, there are whole chapters in the Law of Moses dedicated to describing in some detail what sexual immorality is. You don't have to guess about it. He's using the definition from the Old Covenant. Okay? So he says, if that's not your exception, well, then you're going to be living in adultery. Okay? But what came about was the question from the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? 
And of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the old law gave men a reason, almost a blanket, blank, blanket reason, a blank check. If you don't like your wife, then give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, and there are a couple of couple of things associated with that that they had to obey. But pretty, pretty much, it's just a, a way for the wife, uh, husband to get rid of his wife and uh, marry somebody else, usually somebody wealthy. Because he probably got into trouble trading on the stock market or playing at the casino tables, and he ran out of money, and so he needed to find a younger, prettier, richer wife so that he could continue to do what he'd been doing. And if you don't think that's what this is talking about, read Luke 16. Because that is what this is talking about in many cases. So, uh, so they, they, they want to know from Jesus, you know, is this the way? Is, it, is this still the way it's going to be? And Jesus basically says, no. No. Have you not, have you not read? Like so many of Jesus' pronouncements, have you not read? He who created them male and female from the beginning said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, why did Moses do what he did? Well, because of the hardness of your hearts. That's why. Because they, because they didn't want to live by that rule. And so God gave them an exception. But as Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not that way. And under the new law, under the new covenant, we're going to return back to the original way. We're not going to follow the law of Moses. And so the disciples basically throw up their hands, scratch their head and say, wow, this is tough. You know what? For a lot of people today, it's tough. <laughs> For a lot of people today, it's awfully tough. Um, by the way, you know who the governor was in this country who signed the first divorce for no reason bill? Divorce for no grounds? Ronald Reagan, 1966, California governor. He signed the first no-fault divorce bill. And since that time, we've had a flood of no-fault divorces and what has happened to the family since that time? What has happened to women generally? The families have gotten more fractured. More and more children have been raised in poverty. And more women and more and more women have been in a more difficult position as well. Because men, men have been allowed to escape their responsibilities. That's what Jesus was talking about right here. All right. Last, uh, last quotation. You know, toward the end of Jesus' life, as he's making his way toward Jerusalem, he's, uh, he's showered, you know, Palm Sunday, he's showered with the palm leaves. Hosanna in the highest. The Pharisees say, Jesus, you know, make your disciples be quiet. And Jesus says, if, you know, if they weren't saying it, the rocks would. Well, he, Jesus didn't stop there. He went on into Jerusalem and he made some pronouncements and he made some parables. And in Matthew chapter 21 in verses 43 through 46, he says in the hearing of these priests and scribes and Pharisees and other rulers of the Jews, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. 
and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Interesting reference to Daniel's 2's prophecy. When the chief priest, and of course that's, that's a quotation, <laughs> that, that is also a quotation from, uh, from, the, from Isaiah, isn't it? When the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they understood he was speaking about them. No longer was Jesus saying, well, let's keep this quiet. No need to advertise this. Don't talk about this to anybody else. No, now Jesus is right up in their faces. You are not going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be taken away from you. And you're going to go to torment and judgment day is coming. And you're going to be on the wrong side of that judgment day. And they see, seethed at that. They hated him for that. It says they sought to seize him, but feared the people. But Jesus went on teaching parables. And in Matthew, the 24th chapter, we read the famous chapter about Jesus outside the temple where he predicts the destruction of the Herodian temple. But at the end of that chapter, after verse 34, he talks about a final judgment day. He talks about a final day of judgment that is coming. And in the 25th chapter, it continues on. There's no break there. In the 25th chapter, he tells three parables about the judgment day, right? He tells the parable about the virgins. He tells the parable about the talents. And then he tells, he simply says, he simply says this in verses 31 and 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations, not just the Jews now, but all nations, Reminiscent of the scene of Revelation 20 of the great judgment of all peoples and nations. They will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so Jesus is hard saying to the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests are that judgment day is coming and you are not a sheep. You're a goat, <laughs> and you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the opposite, you are going to go away into eternal punishment and the righteous. And if that wasn't enough to push them over the edge before, it is now. Because the very next verse in Matthew 26 and verse 1 says, Now when he had finished these words, he said to his disciples that after two days... The Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, you know, the apostles, I mean, before this, like a few days before, I mean, Jesus says this over and over and over and over to his apostles. They don't believe it. They don't understand it and they don't believe it. And during that time is when Peter says, may it never be, Lord. I'm not going to allow this to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in God's affairs. You're interested in your own affairs. Well, he tells them bluntly. I mean, bluntly, plainly. I'm going to be crucified. And the very next verse after that, verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and 
kill him. One last thing that Jesus did, right, according to John, I mean, it had, I mean, the, the impetus had to be on there, right? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's like the last thing he does before they crucify him. I mean, I mean, you have to give it to these guys, right? I mean, if you're going to spit in God's face, I mean, do it after he's raised someone from the dead and the guy's been dead three days. Roll the stone away. Lord, Lord he stinks. He's going to stink. There'll be a stench. Huh? Roll it away. And I mean, and after that, they, you know, that's it. I mean, the next, it's like the next day he's arrested and crucified that evening. So, you know, these people, <laughs> Jesus offended them. These were hard sayings for them. They couldn't take it. They weren't going to take it. They didn't take it. And judgment came. Judgment did come to them. But even though Jesus knew that judgment was going to come, <laughs> while he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, the words that Stephen used while he was being stoned. Father, do not hold this sin to their charge. And of course, God gave them 40 years. He gave them 40 more years to repent, to hear the gospel, believe the, I mean, how, how could God be any more gracious and merciful to these people who killed his own son, who saw without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, the work, the words, and the works, and the signs that Jesus performed. They themselves said, well, if when the Messiah does come, what else will he do? What else could he do? They admitted it. When they saw Lazarus, they wanted to put Lazarus to death so that they couldn't prove that he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, what, what boldness, what brashness, what bronze, you know, to literally spit in the face of God, to kill his only begotten son and think you are going to get away with it. They thought they would, but they didn't. Judgment day came. And judgment day is going to come for us, right? Because the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that we, going back to John 6, the bread of life, if we are going to be a part of God's kingdom, if we're going to be a part of his family, if we're going to inherit eternal life, we're going to have to accept Jesus as the son of God and we're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means we're going to have to take all of him. We're not going to just take a part of him. We're not going to take the part we like and the part, leave off the part we don't like. We're going to have to take all of the parts that Jesus is. We're going to have to take the real Jesus. 